0: well good morning i'm sure none of those things have ever happened to any of your families right so we're in this series how you doing and like the video portrayed you know sometimes there's this this like unspoken pressure at church or or maybe just in christianity in general that that everything needs to be kind of like perfect in your life and because everybody else is kind of portraying that sometimes that you feel like, well, maybe I'm the only one whose life is just not bubbling over with God's goodness. And so we kind of started talking about that last week and and then that opened up kind of a discussion about our emotions and our feelings and how do we handle our emotions and how do we handle our feelings and we kind of talked about To a large extent, it depends a little bit on how old you are, your gender, those kind of things. Because if you're the builder generation or you're the boomer generation, (coughs) excuse me, you were kind of taught to suppress your feelings. Excuse me just a second. I've been fighting a cough. I hadn't even had a cold. That you're a part of, like the builders, we were kind of taught, and the and the boomers, you know, you kind of suppress your emotions, emotional avoidance, and especially men, like you just don't share your your feelings, you know, the John Wayne kind of attitude, you know, you, you know real tough men don't don't share their thoughts and and those kind of things and then if you're a generation xer or you're a millennial you kind of wear your feelings on your sleeve you kind of moved way in the opposite extreme direction and and your whole life is just kind of governed by how you feel and it's your gps and and however you happen to feel that day that's kind of what you're like that day and so we talked to begin to talk about that last week and we talked about how emotions are like a like you get into a vehicle, so to speak, and, and each emotion can be a, a vehicle that you climb into. And so you climb into that vehicle of emotion or you climb into that vehicle like maybe it's shame or maybe it's loneliness or whatever. And you climb into that vehicle and then you have to make a decision. Where is that emotion going to take you? Because that's the decision that you make. This, this emotion, and we talked about the road sign last week, and eventually you kind of come to a fork. And like, if, if, if it's shame, am I going to let that emotion of shame take me to a place of, of isolation and darkness? Or am I going to let that emotion of shame take me toward God and toward intimacy with Him? We all have that choice with our emotions, and we just kind of use that vehicle kind of idea to kind of represent how we have a choice about where it goes. And some of us have been taught, too, that, you know, it's wrong to feel certain ways. Well, God designed us with emotions. It's not wrong to feel a certain way, but where are you going to let that feeling take you? So last week, we kind of looked at Jesus. And we kind of looked at how he kind of modeled how we're to deal with our emotions. And today we're going to be talking about a specific emotion. We're going to be talking about the emotion of shame. And again, the question is, where will that emotion of shame take you? Will it take you down a path of isolation and hiddenness and secrecy? Or will it take you to a place of grace? and a place of freedom, and a place of intimacy with God and community and connectedness. Because every time you have that feeling of shame, you have the opportunity. God, where do you want to take me in this vehicle, so to speak? Where do you want to take me with this emotion? It will either take you closer to Him, or it will take you further away. You know, I was kind of on the whole car thing last week with the check engine light it was kind of funny somebody told me after the early service said yeah you you mentioned that last week and i had been kind of driving my car for like three weeks with the check engine light on he said tuesday i got my car and it wouldn't work so i'm like well god spoke to you on sunday that's your fault dude (laughs) but so when we were kind of talking about that whole vehicle thing last week so i was kind of thinking this week what vehicle in my life, because, you know, I've had a few cars through the years, would represent a vehicle of shame. Now, I like sports cars, and, and I haven't had a whole lot of sports cars, but I've had some sports cars, you know, in my life. I had a 68, a Pearl White Firebird once upon a time, loved that car. Uh, I currently have a minivan, but we also have a, uh, uh, I have a little Miata convertible that is just a blast to drive. We have a red Mustang, and no, my 17-year-old son never gets to drive that. Actually, I don't get to drive it much either. Pretty much my wife drives that all the time, and I beg her to let me have the key once in a while. But I've had some really, like, junky, trashy, embarrassing cars. How many of y'all have ever had, like, a junky car? All right, yeah, probably a lot of you have had a junky car. So I was just trying to think of all the junky cars that I've had, because there's been more than a few, which one represented shame the most? So I started going through kind of the list. I had a 1971 Ford Pinto. There is nothing sporty about that car. Like in the chronicles of American automotive history, that was like one of the most dangerous cars that was ever made. Like, people would hit the back of that thing, and it would explode, and so there was all kinds of recalls and stuff, and I, was, I had that car when Renee and I were dating, so that reassured me that she wasn't marrying me for my car or my money. So that was one that came to mind. Then, once upon a time, Renee and I had a Plymouth Voyager minivan, complete with the woodgrain look. Yeah. You can't drive a car like that and look even a little bit cool. I mean, you know, just, 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 we didn't have that car very long. People holler, it was great for moving kids, but not so much for, you know, your image, your, so to speak. But the vehicle that, that most spoke to being the vehicle of shame is this next one. The 1981 four-door Ford Fairmont. That's actually not the picture of it, because I couldn't find a picture of it. And I think that's because I hated it so much, I never took a picture of it. Like, that one there looks ten times better than mine did. And my wife's sitting back over there, she's nodding her head. It was an absolute piece of junk. I hated that car. I mean, I absolutely hated it. I was embarrassed by it. I hated to drive it. Here's the story on the Fairmont. So Renee and I only had one car and she worked about 15 miles away. And uh, so when she went to work, I didn't have a vehicle. And so a friend of mine said, hey, I've got this, uh, I've got this old car that doesn't run. Um, If you can fix it, you can have it. Well, he said I had to pay the the title fee, which was like a dollar in North Carolina at the time. So he actually made me pay a dollar. But anyway, so I fixed it for about $30 and I had $31 in it. And so Pretty good deal, except it was a piece of junk. I mean, this car was just awful. Like, you'd go down the road, and the springs and the shocks were both shot. And so the whole time you're going down the road is bouncing. Squeak, 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 squeak. I'm not exaggerating. Just just squeaked all the time. Like, if you hit the slightest bump, like, part of the dash would fall into your lap. And then you'd have to push it back up. I mean, the dash. And we lived on a dirt road, so, like, when you got home, then, like, you'd just constantly push, 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 push just pushing it back up and I just hated it and like like I never wanted to drive it as much as possible I made Renee drive it Uh, you know that's your car you have fun with it like when I did have to drive it like I'd pull up to a stoplight sink way down in the seat like that you know so nobody could see me I actually thought about getting like the black window tinting and just putting it on the driver's side window so nobody would be able to see me You know, that car loved isolation because, like, when I'd go into a parking lot, I'd always park it in the back. You know, like, maybe I can get to, like, where all the other cars are before anybody sees me and they don't realize that's my car back there. That car loved darkness because, like, at night, I'd park it in the darkest part of a parking lot, like, underneath trees, away from you know, all that, the, 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 the regular cars, and uh, I, I mean, I just hated that car, like, like somebody would ask me about the car, and I'd just be like, oh, no, that's Renee's car, I don't know anything about it, <laughs> and uh, true, like if somebody was coming to our house, I'd like like park it away so nobody would realize it was our car, like we'd park it somewhere else, just hated that car, it was just so embarrassing, And, uh, you know, that's kind of the way the vehicle of shame is. It's what it tends to do to us. The vehicle of shame leads us to hiddenness and secrecy and isolation and silence. And we just don't want to talk about it. And let me tell you how the the Ford Fairmont minutes demise one glorious day. So... I was living at the camp at the time, and they had this like housing loop. And of course, we didn't have trash service or anything like that. So, you know, we had to take a truck and go around the housing loop and get the trash. And so one day, we're we're getting the trash at at the housing loop there, and the the Fairmont was in the way. So I pulled out my keys, and I tossed them to this 17-year-old staff member we had who did have a driver's license. And uh, so I said, would you back that car out of the way? So he backs it out of the way, and then he starts getting out of it And he didn't put it in park. And the car starts rolling. I mean, we're on the side of a mountain. And it starts rolling. And he starts trying to stop it by pushing, you know, as the car's rolling. I'm like, get out of the way. Let it go. I don't want that car anymore. That's what I'm thinking. No, I actually didn't want him to get hurt, and uh, and then it kind of rolls into some a bob wire fence, and that starts tangling him up, and then he does get out of the way, and then it crashes through a wooden pasture fence, and it, and this pasture is like you know not one of those like smooth pretty pastures, it's rough, and that car just starts going down through there without shocks and, and springs, kaboom, 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 and I mean it's just bouncing all over the place, and we're just watching it like it's in slow motion, and then like two hundred yards down the hill, and it's probably going forty miles an hour. It just centers itself on a tree. Bam, hood pops up and steam goes everywhere. And uh, that was the end of the Ford Fairmont. And I let that staff member feel really bad about it for a while. But on the inside, I was like, praise God, hallelujah. Good riddance of that car. But you know, that's what the vehicle of shame does to us. We hide, we keep secrets, we're silent. And that's kind of how it's been since the beginning of time. If you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, you see kind of the first incident of shame. And you may remember in Genesis chapter 2 that before they ate of the tree of good and evil that they were naked and unashamed, Scripture tells us. And then it tells us this in Genesis chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what did they do after they ate of the tree of good and evil? They covered themselves. We tend to think about the fact that they hid from God, but they also kind of hid from each other. They were naked and unashamed, and now they're ashamed, and they cover themselves. And the reason for that is, is because shame destroys intimacy. So when you have secrets, and when you have silence, you do not have intimacy. Intimacy. When you're withholding things and you're not being completely honest, and nobody knows about things in your life, and you're isolated, you don't have intimacy. And some of that it's killing your marriages right now, and others some of your other types of relationships. But not only does it destroy the intimacy between us on a, on a human level, it destroys our relationship with God. Adam and Eve, they hide from God. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I told you last week that we were going to kind of be in the, in the book of Psalms for a vast majority of this study. So today we're going to be over in Psalms chapter 32, and we're going to be looking at this chapter where David talks about shame. And what he's going to do, he's going to talk about what it is like to live with shame and what it's like to live without shame. And you need to understand that when he's writing Psalms chapter 32, he's actually talking about the incident that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he had an affair with Bathsheba. So that's what he's referencing in Psalms chapter 32. I know a lot of you are familiar with that story of David and Bathsheba, but I just want to touch on it briefly since it's so relevant to what we're talking about today. So if we were to read that, that entire story, what we would find is, is David goes out on the rooftop of his palace. He's the king. And he's on the rooftop of his palace, which is probably elevated higher than everybody else's house. So he's on that rooftop. And he begins to look around, and he sees a lady who is bathing. and Like I said, she's probably lower than he is. And I think that... Probably David knew exactly what he was going to see when he went on his rooftop. I don't think, so to speak, that this is the first time that he's logged on to that website. So he sees her, and he asks one of his servants, Who is she? And the servant says, Bathsheba. But have you ever thought about this? The servant just didn't say, She's Bathsheba. He said, She is Bathsheba, the wife. Of Uriah the Hittite. So David knows exactly who she is. He has fought with Uriah. He has been in battle with her husband. He has shed blood with her husband. But that doesn't stop him. He says, Bring her to me. And she comes. There's a one night stand. She goes back home the next day. David thinks everything's cool. Nobody knows about this. Her husband's off to war. He won't find out. A few weeks later, he gets a message from her. Bathsheba says that she's pregnant with David's child. Now he's got a problem. But he thinks he has a a plan, a deceitful plan. He decides that he'll send for Uriah. He brings Uriah back. He tells Uriah... Hey, go home, sleep in your own bed tonight, sleep with your wife. The idea is if he comes home and then everybody will think it's his baby, nobody will know anything and and everything will be chill again. So that's what he does. But the problem is Uriah has more character than David does. Uriah is like, I've got soldiers fighting tonight. I've got soldiers that are sleeping in tents and soldiers that are sleeping on the ground. I'm not going to go home and sleep with my wife when my soldiers are are sleeping on the ground. And he he refuses to go home. Now what's David going to do? Well, he goes to plan B. And it's hard to believe that he stooped to the point that the man that he's going to murder, he even gives him the death certificate, so to speak. He gives this note to Uriah to give to his commander, Joab. Here's what the note said. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. You know, I don't think Joab wanted to do that. I mean, Uriah was probably one of his best lieutenants, so to speak. But he obeyed the order. He literally put Uriah out in the front. And then while Uriah's fighting, he literally withdrew, retreated from him, and left him out there. Uriah was killed. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, moves her into the palace. I got away with it, right? Everything's okay. Well, he might have got away with it at first. But God knew what was going on. And God was not happy. And eventually God sends the prophet to Nathan to confront David. And we'll look at that part of the story in just a few moments. But when David is confronted with his sin, he acknowledges it and he confesses it. So what we want to do is look at Psalms chapter 32, where David talks about what it was, to live, what it was like to live with shame and what it was like to live without shame. So, the first thing I want you to notice is this living without shame brings blessings and happiness. Listen to verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one who the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So, he begins talking about his emotions. And he says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, have your sins forgiven. That's what he says. He uses the word transgression here. That's a strong sin word. It has to do with committing a crime. It has to do with purposely stepping over a known boundary. So this is, this is really significant. When David talks to us about shame, he begins by telling us about sin. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it's a slip up. He says it's a sin. He doesn't say it's an indiscretion. He says it's a transgression. Now I know when you talk about sin, that there are different types of sin. I'm sorry, when you talk about shame, there are different types of shame. For instance, sometimes there are things that are done to you that bring shame to your life and you had absolutely no control over it. Sometimes people say things to you, they speak to you and over you, and maybe that's affected your identity for your entire life and you're ashamed of that, and it, didn't have, it wasn't a decision that you made, didn't have anything to do with you. Maybe somebody did something to you when you were a child, it was beyond your control, and you are still ashamed of it to this day. There's different kinds of shame. But the shame that David is talking about here, it's clear that it's something that he has done. It was a transgression, he calls it. And the language matters. The Oxford Junior Dictionary came out a few years ago and they removed the word sin from the dictionary. And as you can tell, Oxford Junior Dictionary, you can tell the age group that it's kind of aimed at. And this is their explanation for why they took the word sin out of the dictionary. And I quote, that it had fallen into disuse and was no longer relevant to a younger generation. Now, why we may not like that, there's a lot of truth in it. We don't talk about sin very often because we think that if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. We don't want people to feel sinful. We don't want people to feel shameful. So let's just not make a big deal about it. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to hurt, you know, damage somebody's self-esteem. Let's just minimize our sin. Let's just not use the word. And maybe if we don't call it sin and we don't call it a transgression, we'll stop feeling shame. And if we don't make a big deal of it, it'll go away. How's that working out for us as a culture? I'd say not very good. Not very good at all. But we try to cover up our shame by minimizing the seriousness of our mistakes and the sin that we've committed. David says, being set free, being happy, starts with calling a transgression or a sin what it is. Don't call it an accident. Don't call it a mistake. Don't call it a slip up, an oversight, a lapse in judgment, a trip up, a misstep, a misunderstanding. It's sin. So after his affair with Bathsheba, a year passes David has not acknowledged his sin. He's just trying to keep it hidden. He's had Uriah killed. He thinks nobody's going to know about this. He thinks that the, the worst thing that can happen is for somebody to find out about this. And I think sometimes we are like that. The worst thing that could happen is for somebody to find out. That's not the worst thing. The worst thing is that you die a respectable fraud... And you live with that shame and guilt the rest of your life. And you never experience the joy and the freedom and the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That's the worst thing. But David, he tries to hide it. Here's the second point I want you to notice in this passage. Living with shame is a terrible way to live. David describes what it was like to have this weight on him. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Notice some phrases here. When I kept silent. When I pretended nothing was going on. When I kept my secrets When nobody knew, and I was keeping it hidden from everybody and thought I was getting away with it. My bones were wasted through my groaning all day long. I wasn't getting away with anything. And 24 7, I felt terrible for day and night. Your hand was heavy. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. So he always telling us, he said, the, the, the shame was so great on me that it began to affect me physically. This emotion was affecting him physically. And of course, there are all kinds of specialists that tell us that happens, that you can have emotions that, that affect you physically. And he said, it was like, you know, when you work in the summertime and it just takes all of your strength, it just, just saps you. I think those of us who live in the South understand perfectly what he's talking about here with the heat and the humidity that we have in the summertime it can just sap your strength i remember a few years ago uh, burning bush hosted a project 127 event we were working on construction projects and stuff in in our community and uh, i was putting i was in charge of putting a roof up on a house over on uh, cloud springs road and it was just hot every day that week i mean just burning up hot and uh so one day we're on that roof and it's about two o'clock in the afternoon and it's about 97 98 degrees and the humidity's high and and we got some black tar paper on that roof you couldn't even touch that without without burning you and you know we were constantly you know having the kids get water and we were all drinking water about every 30 minutes about a 20 ounce bottle of water and i was sending the kids down and kind of rotating them back and forth up onto the roof but i wasn't getting off the roof and about two o'clock in the afternoon i I just started to feel kind of lightheaded. And I thought, you know, this is the, you know, the first signs of a, a heat stroke kind of thing. So I sat down for a few minutes and then drank about three bottles of water in a row and then kind of went back to work. But that night, I was just absolutely sapped, just dog tired. And I know most of you who grew up in the South know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, David says that that that's the way the the shame was affecting him. That it was like working outside on a hot summer day. And it's it's just affecting his physical well-being. And he's living with this shame and it's isolating him from God. And he's disconnected from God. And that's what shame does. It disconnects you. It isolates you. It keeps you away from other people. Back last summer, I, uh, Renee was working one evening, and I, I don't care much to cook, and uh, the kids were all doing their kind of things, and uh, so one night I decided, you know, no, nobody else was home. I was just going to go to a restaurant and eat. So I went over to that uh, place over there uh, by Firestone, uh, where Zaxby's is, that Mike's Pizza and Burgers. So I went over there, and I sit down, and I order, and a lady brings me my food, and I eat, and all that kind of stuff. And then she brings me my ticket and lays it on the table. And uh, so I've got the ticket, and I reach into my pocket for my wallet, and it's not there. Check the other pocket. Nope. No wallet. I'm like, oh, no. What am I going to do? Like, no money, no wallet, no check card, nothing. It's up keys. Like, what am I gonna do? I can't call Renee, she's a nurse, she's not like she can come and bail me out. And uh, Sean doesn't have his driver's license yet, it was a few weeks before he got his driver's license. And so, I Haley's my only hope, right? So, I start calling Haley, yeah, like she's gonna answer the phone, right? It's dad calling, right? So, she didn't answer the phone, like, what am I gonna do? So, I sit there for about 30 more minutes, you know, I'm just playing around on my phone trying to try to buy some time and I I can tell the waitress is probably wondering what's going on and uh, I keep trying to call Haley and she's not picking up and I'm like so you know you start running these scenarios through your head okay what can I do well I can go up there and just say like I am so sorry I forgot my wallet I promise I'll come back I'm a preacher yeah we've heard that before So that's not a good option and and, uh, then I'm like Okay, just briefly it went through my mind. I'll just leave. And I'll get some money and then I'll come back. Right? I'm, I'm kind of thinking that scenario and I'm thinking, man, if I left, that would be so embarrassing if they know that I'm a pastor in the area, even if I do come back. And uh, I might be so ashamed I don't even want to come back. And, like, if I do that, I'll never set foot in this restaurant again, even if I do come back and pay. And I don't know if you know, but that place went out of business. Maybe the reason they'd go out of business is because I didn't come back and pay my check. I don't know. But all these scenarios are, are going through my mind. And, uh, like, what am I going to do? And so, finally, the waitress, it's like an hour. I've been sitting there now playing with my phone. I've been in there like two hours. She comes by, everything Okay. Yeah, everything's fine. And I knew she knew something was up. But finally, I got a hold of Haley, and she came, and, and I was able to pay, pay my bill. But I think what happens, like, like that scenario, if I would have played out the scenario of like leaving and, and I would have been too embarrassed to ever go back, I think that's what happens sometimes. That's why people sometimes don't want to come to church. Like, like they're too embarrassed, and they don't want to hear somebody talk about things like we're talking about today. We'd rather just stay busy. We'd rather hang around people who don't make a big deal about it. That, that's what we would rather do. And so you avoid places like this and you avoid people like me, so to speak. And that's what David's doing. He's isolating himself from God, but he's also isolating himself from other people. And his strength is sapped. Here's a few questions to ask yourself about shame and your relationship with others. Not God so much, but others. Have you been avoiding certain people in your life? Are there people that you just steer clear of because you're ashamed of something that you did and you don't want to be reminded of it? You know, sometimes parents that are divorced don't want to be around their children because it reminds them of the divorce and their their shame of, of something like that. There are people who are ashamed of failure and they don't want to be around the people that they think had anything to do with that that reminds them of their failure. And so we tend to pull ourselves back from the people that that should give us joy and energy to, to avoid shame. And so that vehicle of shame that we've climbed into has just taken us to the back of the parking lot somewhere where we're isolated. Another question is this. Have you been defensive lately? The I don't want to talk about it approach to life. And it makes us more defensive when there's shame in our lives. And we know that there's something that, that needs to be dealt with and it kind of gives us an edge because we haven't dealt with it. Or the third thing. Do you have a tendency to be critical of others? One of the d- ways that we deal with shame is we tend to blame other people it's like our mind somehow like, well, if I just blame it on somebody else, then, then, then it doesn't look so bad on me. And we kind of play the, the blame game and point our finger at everybody else. And, you know, I know people that are like pro-level at this. And like they've reverse engineered every problem in their life to blame it on somebody else. And somehow they feel like that lets them off the hook, so to speak. Well, Nathan comes along. I mentioned him earlier. And he confronts David about his sin. And so Nathan comes along and he tells David this parable. And David doesn't realize it's a parable. But a parable is kind of a made up story. So Nathan begins telling him this parable. He says, tells David, he says there's this this very rich man. He's very wealthy and he has lots of sheep. And he has a neighbor who has one sheep. And so the rich man, he's having some friends and family come over one night. And so he takes the neighbor's one sheep and he barbecues it. That's the dentist translation, not the Old Testament translation. But anyway, so he has this barbecue. And he took his neighbor's lone sheep, even though he had multiple sheep. And then Nathan says, what would you do to that man? And David doesn't even hesitate. I'd kill him. And Nathan goes, you're the man. Not like you're the man, like in a good way, like when you were with the football players or something. No, it's not like that. You're that guy. You're the guy. Because of what you did killing Uriah and that affair that you had. David immediately acknowledges his sin. He confesses his sin. He begins to own it. And it's interesting to me that he's pretty harsh with this guy who stole a sheep, even though David committed murder. And that's the interesting thing about shame. Sometimes, maybe you experienced even in religious circles that you grew up in, that people shame take, try to deal with their shame by shaming other people and putting other people to shame. And somehow, if I can make their shame look bigger than my shame, then my sin and my shame is okay. Maybe nobody will notice. Which brings me to the third thing. Living without shame is done by acknowledging and confessing sin. Initially, David is harsh and he's critical. But then he confesses in verse 5. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, the message this morning is not to stop feeling shame. The emotion is not wrong. The message this morning is confess. Confess that shame so that God can begin the healing process. I understand that's not an easy thing to do. I know it's a hard thing to do. But when you do it, it gives God an opportunity to start the healing process. There's something really significant in verse 5 I want you to notice. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's really significant here. He doesn't just say, you forgave my sin. What does it say? You forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, sometimes in church, I think we, we, we don't talk about that part. Yeah, God forgave your sin, but now you have to live with the guilt of it the rest of your life. There are churches like that. It was used as a way to control, so to speak, or exert power. But that's not what the gospel talks about. When God forgives sin, he also forgives the guilt of sin. He just didn't take the sin with him to the cross. He took the shame too. And that makes all the difference in how you were set free. He forgives your guilt. And so David speaks about that. And the word forgive here is to lift a heavy burden and carry it away. Lift a heavy burden and carry it away. And that's what God wants to do for you right now. Remove it from sight. And if you go on down to verse 11, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, be glad, you righteous, sing all you who are upright in heart. And that's where joy comes from. So you're in that vehicle of shame, and you come up to the split in the road, so to speak. Which way are you going to go? There's two eyes here. You can go to isolation, or you can go to Intimacy. And I mean, some of you, you rolled in here this morning in a 1981 Ford Fairmont, and you're in that vehicle of shame, and, and you've parked it way in the back of the parking lot, and nobody wants to see it, you think? And Jesus said, Jesus says, I'll ride in that car with you, I'll roll with you, I'll drive it, and he drives it to the cross where you can find freedom and you can find grace. And that's what we want to do in the next five minutes. We want to roll up in our Ford Fairmonts of shame, and we want to invite Jesus in. And we want Him to let him take us to a place of forgiveness and freedom and grace. And I realize as I speak this morning, there are all kinds of believers in here God, whatever shame you have, He wants you to confess it. Make things right with Him. Not hide it, not isolate. He wants you to take it and bring Him closer to Him. But I also realize that there's some people in here that there's never been that time when you've offered any of your sin to God. And you've never had that forgiveness. You don't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, you've known about God. You've talked about God all your life. But there's never been that time he said, you know what, God, I've just messed things up. I, I, I can't fix things myself. God, forgive me of where I fail you. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on a cross for me. Would you just take over? See, see, God has designed us for a relationship with him. He wants to have a relationship with us. But sin keeps that from happening. It keeps us separated. God wants that relationship, but we have sin." There's a gap there. You know what bridges that gap? The cross. Jesus Christ. That's what bridges that gap. And when we come, Jesus died on a cross, he lived a perfect life, died for your sins and my sins. That closes the gap. We come across the bridge, however you want to say it, and have that relationship with him, the promise of eternal life. And he transforms our life. It's not just about going to heaven. It's about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Is that something you've ever done? God, just just a prayer to him that you want him to take over, that that you've messed up, that there's sin in your life. And it's not the word so much, it's the the heart, the attitude. If if you've never done that, I want to encourage you. God, I've messed up. I believe that you died for me. Come into my life. Transform my life. I want to encourage you to pray that prayer, and if you do tell somebody, let them talk to you about it and, and figure out what what 's next in this transformation process. Would you pray with me, please <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and well, we just look at a story that happened two or three thousand years ago, and Father, we just see see an authenticity that is so real things that we can identify with today i thank you for that story and i thank you for the truths i pray this morning for those that for whatever reason there might be things that that sin that they're dealing with or shame that they're dealing with and father i just pray that they'll let you in the driver's seat father that They'll just seek your forgiveness and, Father, that your forgiveness will let them put this behind them, whatever it is. I also pray today if there's somebody here that's never made a commitment to have a personal relationship with you and put you in charge and ask for forgiveness of sin, Father, just pray that they might have the courage and the boldness to do that today heart prayer not necessarily the words and and father i pray that if they do they'll they'll seek me out they'll seek somebody else out and father just find out more about what it means to have a personal relationship with you pray for our time of commitment pray as the holy spirit moves among us that that will respond pray all these things in jesus name amen